We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The ability to change direction without losing speed. And then the patient's not only behind the line, but at the second level. I mean, you watch these Chiefs games, and he is hanging out there in the secondary, watching his guards just wipe out corners, safeties, linebackers. It's January 2004, Colts at Chiefs. This is Remember That Game, the podcast about sporting events that take you on a journey and maybe chart the path of the zeitgeist. I'm your host, Thomas Emmerich, and my guest is Rotoviz co-owner and podcaster, Zero RB originator, banana stand proprietor, Sean Siegel. Prima Holmes, Colts, went 4-0 against KC in the playoffs, games all within one score in the fourth quarter. It's not generally brought up as one of the few classic playoff rivalries, but what did the specter of the Colts mean for you as a Chiefs fan, Sean? Well, certainly when you have that previous huge loss to Indianapolis, when you have the dominant 13-3 and team, you're hosting that divisional round game at home, to have the big upset and then to come back years later and have this Peyton Manning juggernaut that you're facing, where you're really kind of going into the game thinking that if either team punts, I mean, that'll be the team that loses. And you had brought up, kind of as we were discussing through this, that Peyton Manning coming into this was not yet a dominant playoff quarterback. But 2003 really is where he comes into his own and becomes maybe the greatest quarterback of all time. Now, Patrick Mahomes has something to say about that. And we won't even mention the third possible person. But this 2003 and then going into 2004, which was really launched by these playoffs, I mean, you're talking about a Chiefs team that is really one of the greatest offenses of all time, but facing perhaps the greatest quarterback of all time at his very peak. And so, you know, you talk about the rivalries. They also have a game at home, again, jumping a decade further into the future, where they have a massive lead against Andrew Luck and end up going down. So they've had some rough games against the Indianapolis Colts in the playoffs. Yeah, as you mentioned with Peyton Manning getting the monkey off his back, uh, the CBS intro really went for it with clips against Denver the week prior and Peyton Manning finally getting his first playoff win in four tries, six years in the league. There's a whispered uh, uh, voiceover on the intro package that keeps going, can you win the big game, the big game? 
they, they really uh, indulge themselves. And then they bring in Dick Enberg. Peyton answered with a perfect passing performance. Uh, so the Colts wrecked Denver the week prior. Peyton with a 158.3 passer rating. How cognizant were you of the, Pey- the, the Peyton Manning playoffs narrative heading into that postseason? And did it factor into your confidence in KC the morning of that game? Like, oh, let's see him do it on the road against your 13-3 Chiefs here. Yeah, I don't think that there is a ton of confidence that his past playoff performances are going to make a huge difference. Now, you're the home team. You got this great offense yourself. You're telling yourself this story that, I mean, he's a regular season quarterback and the Colts also don't have the other pieces. He's going to have to be absolutely fantastic. Maybe he is a little bit more of a choke than the players you have in your locker room. And yet, I mean, they absolutely dismantled the Broncos the previous week, which is a team that the Chiefs had had plenty of trouble with over the last couple of years. That type of performance doesn't really give you a lot of hope that he's going to be the problem. You definitely feel like the Chiefs are going to have to go out there and win it. We then throw to Dick Enberg and Dan Deardorff and Arrowhead. Enberg delivers the S out of the intro. But it is a very early 2000s setting of the table over the graphics and live shot of the field. It's a headline cast of NFL characters in this drama. Enberg notes that half the league's all-pro offense is in this game. So as you mentioned, yeah, it's going to be tough to stop stop O here, um, especially after we've seen with Peyton last week and what we've seen from the Chiefs all year. Then there's an exploding uh, CBS graphic with like CGI fire blowing off of it. It's a star-studded cast ready to explode. Uh, so they, they keep tying in the People's Choice Awards going on that night. I think they gave Best Television Drama to CSI. This CBS just handed itself a bunch of awards. Uh, were you making plans to watch that that uh, Sunday night? No, that would that would not have factored into the evening's activities. <laughs> were, were you perhaps going to catch uh, the world premiere broadcast of the Arrested Development season one episode, Peer Pressure? You know, when I saw that in the notes, I I mean that was extremely exciting. And you ask if if that had dulled the loss of the chiefs there and obviously not at that point because it hadn't yet become really this cult phenomenon. But when I was reading back through it, it did help dull the loss. So yes, arrested development debuting goes on to be perhaps the greatest television show of all time. That would have been much more appointment viewing than what CBS is trying to sell us. And we had a lot of entertainment here, at least on CBS, at 1 o'clock. No matchup in the free agency era has delivered more one-score fourth-quarter playoff games than Colts-Chiefs. Uh, you could argue when these teams, when they get together, have delivered more pure playoff entertainment to millennials than any other combo. And here we're getting the only game in postseason history without a punt. Is that any consolation in the novelty for you, considering... Uh, what's about to go down at Arrowhead? I mean, yes, in that I mean, the Chiefs were unstoppable. And I think, I mean, this is one of the most underrated offenses of all time, in part because the defense was so just unbelievably poor. Now, you look at the 2003 season, and one of the things that they did was create a lot of turnovers. They were very aggressive. They were very opportunistic. When your offense scores 
the way this Kansas City Chiefs team did, and when it scores in every possible way, when you have an elite passing attack. But beyond that, you have the greatest running game in the history of football. When we talk about not just efficiency and not just leaning on it, but the explosiveness of it and how they could go down the field and just annihilate teams with this fast-paced rushing attack. I mean, you just you don't get that out of the running game. You have teams that lean on it and play defense, but you don't get a team that is so dynamic as a rushing team that they're unstoppable. When you have all of those things on the offensive side of the ball, it does put a lot of pressure on the opposing team. And especially at home, and especially in certain games, the Chiefs were able to lean on that as a defensive unit. But if it came down to actual stops that weren't turnover-based, they just didn't have the players, or they didn't have the coaching. They fired the coach, obviously, after this game. I mean, you know you're going to need to go and score a ton of points. And, I mean, I was even thinking back to the previous year. I had a chance to go to the Denver-Kansas City game at Arrowhead in 2002. And this was already one of the all-time great offenses. 2001 was a little bit of a rebuilding season where they're trying to get the Vermeil system to work for them. Trent Green doesn't play particularly well that year, so there are a lot of naysayers. 2022, they break out and they have this offense again, just one of the greatest of all time, but their defense was maybe the worst of all time that year. So even in that game, you're at the stadium, they go up 34-20 in the fourth quarter and I mean, Arrowhead, one of the loudest venues in all of sports. And I think probably the case even more in the past than it is now, as they're a multi, you know, Super Bowl winner, you have the waves of sound rolling over the field. And yet, for whatever reason, we got some tickets that were kind of in a Denver Broncos accession. And the Denver Broncos fans were not scared. And they do come back. They score two touchdowns. They force overtime. They win 37-34 in overtime. One of the games that really kept the Chiefs from arriving a year earlier I mean, there's a lot of trepidation as it relates to what this defense is going to be able to accomplish. They start the season off 4-0, riding 14 takeaways, and then a Dante Hall kick return to cap off that first month with a win in Baltimore. Struggle a little down the stretch, take a few losses after starting 9-0, but still can secure the two seed and host Peyton Manning. Tony Dungy, he's 0-5 in road playoff games. Let's see if Peyton Manning can do it in, as you mentioned, a deafening arrowhead. They get the ball to start. Uh, Edron James is stuffed on first and second down, not like last week in RCA Dome. Manning walks up to the line on third and eight, barks some orders, gets back in shotgun, makes another hand gesture, and then stares down the barrel of two Chiefs rushers to hit Marvin Harrison for the first. Dick Enberg reveals, Manning told us he doesn't mind the noise. And we're off. Is this an uh uh-oh moment for you? Well, any punt, again, is going to just completely change the game. If you can get a three and out to start this and go score yourself, you have, and this wasn't as much of a factor in terms of the way the team is played tactically at the time, but then you're going to get the second half kickoff. I mean, it's just like today, where if you force a three and out and then Patrick Mahomes has the ball and you're going to get the second half kickoff, you're almost feeling like the game's already over. Now, that's not the case, but with the limited number of possessions you have in a football game, you're all set, but... As you mentioned, they convert there. You have the completion to Marvin Harrison. Harrison, you know, for some of the younger listeners, I mean, really one of the greatest players in NFL history, certainly a receiver who would be in that Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase type of category and someone who did it for much longer than they have to this point. 
and you have a second third down on this drive that James is able to convert. You really feel like this first possession here for the Chiefs defense is a missed opportunity. You mentioned yeah, Marvin Harrison, the alpha in the pass attack at this point, four straight 100 plus catch seasons. Uh, wouldn't be done again until AB in 2016. Later in the drive, Peyton has this late backfield shift to pick up the corner blitz. The linebacker and safety, let's just, let's just say, are in position for it to come out hot. It does not. Brandon Stokely up the seam and across the goal line, untouched. Colts 7-0 like that. Are you personally feeling or sensing the pressure on this Chiefs offense in that moment? Where are you watching the game? Like what? What's uh, what's the physical layout here as uh, the pressures on the Chiefs defense or Chiefs offense? Yeah, I was trying to remember that. Obviously, it's it's a little while back at this point, and we're talking about early January here. I think you even had to take someone to the airport in the second half of this game. So the only thing that would be that was sort of trump Kansas City Chiefs football, especially there in Kansas City would be family. And so I'm sure we were watching as a group there at home. You have this sense of disaster as the game starts to unfold. You're like, well, I mean, now we can make that little trip to the airport. But yeah, I, you don't want to trail. You don't want to trail in these shootouts and feel like every time you've got to make the play you don't want to be the team that's chasing i mean you can chase and win sometimes when you're leading you get a little bit too conservative but for the game to start with a peyton manning touchdown especially within the context that you had mentioned there where you're thinking okay you've got arrowhead stadium you've got tony dungy a coach who i mean tony dungy is not a great coach you mentioned the, the failures that he had had in the past and what that led to him actually ending up in Indianapolis. You have Peyton Manning, who has struggled, but then they go down and score, and you're like, I don't think that's going to necessarily factor in, at least not until we get down to crunch time. But to get down to crunch time where that matters, you've got to be in a position to put pressure on. You have Trent Green coming out for his first playoff drive of his career. Looks a little spotty early on, but fortunately... As Green eases into the game, Priest Holmes is already going bonkers, just ripping off chunks to suddenly inside the 10. Broadcast drops the graphic that Kansas City has the highest red zone TD percentage since 1995, or for any single season, the, the two oh three Chiefs. They're ahead of uh, Vermeil's old team, the 99 Rams, uh, who I think were five on that list. And helps again when you have Tony Gonzalez in this offensive line. Priest Holmes gliding downfield behind Rofe, Waters, Wiegman, Shields, Tate, and skying over the top at the goal line. Has there ever been a more aesthetically pleasing rushing attack? I don't think so. And it was interesting that the first thing that Vermeil does when he gets there is add to the offensive line, add the left tackle, really lean into how athletic will shields is this was a rushing attack that could get out there on the edge would have blockers then at the second level and you watch the fit for this team where priest holmes is so patient he's not one of these all-time great athletes but his ability to glide to find the seams to hit that and the smoothness the ability to change direction without 
losing speed. And then the patient's not only behind the line, but at the second level. I mean, you watch these Chiefs games, and he is hanging out there in the secondary, watching his guards just wipe out corners, safeties, linebackers, and then he continues to gash the defense and make these big plays. I mean, you mentioned this drive, a 15-yard gain, 11-yard gain, an 11-yard gain, three consecutive plays where he goes for 10-plus, unfortunately, stuffed down by the goal line. Yeah, one of the most exciting comparisons for me of a player coming out of the draft was when they were comping Christian McCaffrey to Priest Holmes. And the way they follow blocks and the way they glide um, got me really excited for CMC considering how great it was to watch Priest Holmes in this Chiefs offense. But on this drive, CBS maybe jinxed it. They settle for a field goal. Green, you know, a little spotty first drive. He does settle in, but missed a wide open Mark Richter. And then Priest slips turning the, the corner on third. Same field where Edger and James tore his ACL two years prior. Before that 0-1 season, Edge had started his career with back-to-back 2,000-yard campaigns between rushing and receiving. At the time of this game, Holmes himself had three consecutive 2K total yard seasons and just made his way back from off-season hip surgery. Both great stories as far as what recovery looked like at that time. If you retroactively apply DraftKings scoring here in the playoff game, Edge would hit about 30 DK, Priest about 40 Did you ever get these guys in fantasy during their careers? And out of the two, which would you take at their peak? I was trying to think about that. Obviously, in Kansas City, Priest Holmes, I mean, everywhere, (laughs) would be going at the 101. You do have some other names who are interesting in this range around this time. Marshall Falk is just kind of finishing up as the greatest show on turf back who puts up just just a hair under 33 points per game in 2000. He comes back in 2001, puts up 30. Priest Holmes, you mentioned the hip surgery. He finishes a 2002 season, and we mentioned that 2002 year where the offense perhaps even better, 31.6 points per game. I mean, we, we had the season in 2019 from Christian McCaffrey that still lives on for everyone and still pushes him up there and makes it almost a little bit odd that he's not the clear 101 after he were more or less healthy last season he gets up there in that 29 range but you think about most of the players that we're talking about as uber backs from say 2016 to the present and you're thinking if you can get 23 to 25 points per game you're going to actually absolutely blitz your league 31 points per game for priest holmes you're talking about a full touchdowns more of value and the other interesting thing there, I was pulling up the road of his screener, kind of looking at these guys, seeing how that translated into volume. That 2002 season, Holmes averaged 6.6 rushing fantasy points over expectation, 2.8 receiving, 9.4 fantasy points over expectation. So on a per game level, he's scoring almost 10 more points than his volume would have indicated. That's how good he was. That's how efficient this rushing attack was. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. Then you go down the list a little bit and you look for Edrin James that season in 2000 that you referenced averages 25 points per game, a fantastic season. Obviously, he was at 2.5. Now, if you're averaging 2.5 fantasy points over expectation, that's great. And it's especially impressive on the type of volume that he was being asked to handle you go and you look at that year. He has 2,300 yards from scrimmage. He scores 18 touchdowns. 
This is the second year in the league. The first year in the league, he goes over 2,000 yards from scrimmage. The 17 combined touchdowns. The Colts ran edge into the ground. You know, this was more normal back at that time. And we obviously had these massive volume seasons from like Ladanian Tomlinson, who not only had the volume, but was an extraordinary back in his own right. Edge had 387 carries and 87 targets on top of that. So probably not a surprise that he gets hurt. And I was kind of thinking, because my recollection of all of this is that he does come back and he plays in the NFL for a long time, but he was never again anything like what he was in those first two years. And then you look at his stats and you see that as a 26-year-old, he goes for over 2,000 yards from scrimmage. I mean, he comes back and has six consecutive seasons with over 1,300 yards from scrimmage and the touchdown number. Two of those seasons are double-digit touchdown seasons. For a guy to be a shadow of his former self and put up that kind of production, I mean, it just gives you a sense of what he was before the injury. I mean, at the very peak, I'm obviously going to take Priest Holmes, but you go back and look through it, and Edger and James was an extraordinary running back. Workhorse stretches of play in NFL history, Edge around the turn of the century, uh, Holmes leading into this season. Edge had a good year this year too, but yeah, not quite what he was pre-ACL. How did the viability of the zero RB approach change in your mind from the 2000s to 2013 when you wrote the zero RB piece. So this game we're looking at took place in the 2003 season. I would have started playing seriously around 2008. And one of the things that really does kind of crack me up now when I think about how people are playing underdog is you go back through and there was in, I mean, I really should remember the name, but there was a game set up where you were basically playing against 11 computer teams, but there are prizes, all that kind of thing. And obviously, if you're playing against the computers or playing against people, you're going to have some different elements to that. But at the same time, the computers could actually not allow you to get some of the advantages that you get from playing against humans as well. And so over the course of a couple of years, I drafted like 215 teams. And I mean, it's just a couple of seasons, right? So the unique elements of those seasons make a big difference but one of the things that i really tried to articulate when people would push back against your running back was that this was not something that wasn't tested and didn't play both in terms of in these events where it was incredibly both in these events what it was incredibly dominant and then later in high stakes leagues like the nffc and some of the other contests there But one of the things I think that was really interesting as you kind of look through this time period, this was the very height of the superstar running backs that you're not going to be able to compete with because you're not talking about, well, can you get into that 18 to 20 point range? You're talking about, can you get that 25 to 30 point range? And the receivers are not necessarily going to score at this level. Now, one of the things I kind of mentioned to you in chatting was that I don't necessarily remember these early 2000s teams where they would have been recreational teams with friends. I do remember in a standard league drafting Marvin Harrison at the 101 in really like his only down year. So I was trying to go for it early, even back at the very beginning of fantasy football when the scoring format didn't really support it. You, know, you hit Marvin Harrison, you're like, well, I mean, maybe we got to look at these running backs. But one of the interesting things too was that 
scoring was so skewed in favor of running backs and there was such a rush to get the running backs that the nffc around this time period and really you know, talking about five six years after the game here their scoring format was half ppr for the running back full ppr for the wide receiver i mean you can think about what that would do today to adps if we had that as the format and still the leagues were very running back heavy and so as you're kind of working through it and it's one of these things where i mean you can just pull up the broad numbers and see very clearly the types of things that we've been trying to communicate to readers and listeners through blair's win the flex tool when the flex originally started with the fantasy douche just the gigantic advantage you get from drafting wide receivers in most areas of the draft and certainly if you load up on stars early and you think back to the early days where it wasn't a matter of loading up on wide receivers so you can keep up with the guy next to you it was a matter of you could get all of the stars and then if your team hit on some emerging running backs you were unbeatable that was amplified even more by a scoring format where you got more points for the wide receivers so that was one of the elements that really created the push for this original zero rb approach and attack i do think that once you move out of the holmes tomlinson falk type of era you can approach that more effectively and you can get to the point where it would actually make sense to look at receiver at the 101 at the 102 at the 103 it's easy to forget just how concentrated some of these attacks were and how high volume some of the attacks were. One of the things when you start to research this 2003 game and you know, reminisce, think back through everything that was happening at that point, was that I mean, Marvin Harrison was a target hog like no other. He had a season back during this time period at his week where he had 205 targets. 205 which i mean you don't you're not going to see anybody get 205 targets this year even with the extra game so yeah i mean there was a viability to it but one of the things kind of back then and then as we translate through is just always this idea of where are you in the draft don't chase points and if you can get that group of receivers where you've got the best guys it's going to give you a great chance to win two very concentrated offenses Though on the next couple drives, the quarterbacks do a good job of getting folks uh, involved. Uh, Trent Green answers big third down to Eddie Kennison on that drive to start out. And then Dante Hall for the score at the end. Manning is having Marvin Harrison shut out the next drive, but uh, instead it's an emerging player named Reggie Wayne with a 17-yard grab. Stokely on third down. A real early Manning era guy, Marcus Pollard for 21. Touchdown pass to a fullback. This would be, I read, the only playoff game in history where both quarterbacks hit 2.5 expected points added until Pat Mahomes and Josh Allen did it 20 years later. To uh, split the difference there, were there any shades of the Alex Smith against Andrew Luck 2013 wild card for you looking back at this? Different game flow, but where your less heralded Chiefs QB is elevating his pass weapons and stepping up against the anointed one. And I'll just keep going back to this idea that this is perhaps the greatest offense of all time. And that if you get even a, I mean, even a tiny bit of defensive play, you're talking about Vermeil winning multiple Super Bowls as you know this old curmudgeonly coach. 
Trent Green was amazing. And I mean, I don't have extensive experience attending NFL games in person like a lot of people do, but I have been to probably 10 games at Arrowhead. And through the years, they would be very different games as a little kid, you know, going to those Marty Schottenheimer games and teams where, I mean, Marty Schottenheimer is maybe the best regular season coach in NFL history. He's at least in the top 10. And you go to a Chiefs game coached by Marty Schottenheimer with that defense and that confidence. And again, I mean, Marty Schottenheimer era probably is peak arrowhead in terms of, I mean, opposing teams were just terrified. I mean, they would come in and the defense would just roll over them. And so then obviously you get those two playoff games where they barely score because the quarterback play during that time period was very poor. They choke those games where they're 13 and three teams. Then you come back with this Vermeil team that is just the complete opposite. And all of those dynamics are very interesting. But even as you watch the other teams sort of through the years coming into Arrowhead, and I had a chance to go to the Monday night game between the Bills and the Chiefs the year after they had lost to the Bills with Joe Montana in the AFC oh, wow. championship game. And sat in the front row that night. I don't know exactly how that worked out, but I mean, you can see the behemoths that the players are. The Chiefs roll over the Bills. Uh, it doesn't really lead to anything that year, but all of these different events and these different games are impressive. You're watching, I mean, the best of the best, and yet nothing really prepares you for what Trent Green did, which was to mount this elite passing attack. Now, granted, the opposing team has to account for their rushing attack. And yet Eddie Kennison, Johnny Morton. I mean, the sad thing is the chiefs had no receivers in this greatest offense ever. You would go to these games and Kennison was fast. He couldn't really catch the ball very well, but you would go to these games. And even when they're out there in single coverage, these guys are blanketed. They are never open. And the element that the chiefs tried to employ with this offense was similar to you know what he had done with the rams similar to what mike martz did with the rams where they were going to be able to run on you they were going to have this passing game to the running back that was almost unstoppable but in the passing game they wanted to challenge you both horizontally and vertically make you defend the whole team whole field they would get you so spread out but you have to have the quarterback to pull the trigger and people didn't think that trent green was going to be able to do what kurt warner did but then after that first year I mean, he was amazing. And especially, I think, when you consider the caliber of his weapons. Now, when you have a Priest Holmes and you have a Tony Gonzalez, people are going to think, well, I mean, it's similar to where the Chiefs are now, where you have a Travis Kelsey and people are going to be like, don't whine about your weapons. But the receivers were so bad and they were never open. And Green had to throw these deep out routes where, I mean, he's got to hit a guy at the sideline where the sideline is also a factor and if he leaves it a little bit short or a little bit soft, that's going to be a pick six. He would hit these guys with no separation, almost like a handoff over and over and over again. And so I, mean, I think that Trent Green, one of the more undervalued QBs, I mean, obviously he's no Peyton Manning, but I don't think that, I mean, the gap here is nowhere near the gap that you would have between, say, an Andrew Luck and an Alex Smith, even though I'm very much an Alex Smith apologist as well. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Trent Green came out a little shaky first drive, but then got really dialed in. Even as uh, the receivers struggled to get open when they did, you know, Kennison kind of bobbled that big third down completion early on. Kennison also has one kind of whistle right through his hands in the red zone. Morton has a big drop on third down late in the half. That's followed by a Morton Anderson missed kick. That sends him into the half down 21-10. Oh gosh, and then the... Tony Gonzalez gets a YOLO ball, and you know, why not? He's a tight end one each of the final 14 weeks of the season, which I found in the Rotoviz NFL Player Stat Explorer, dear listener, uh, there in Rotoviz Tools. But Gonzalez has the touchdown called back. Uh, those 10-ish fantasy points uh, are gone on an OPI uh, as Gonzalez pushed off there. But still, outside of Gonzalez and Priest Holmes, Trent Green was really elevating his uh, weapons in the past game, but that receiver core ends up leaving them down 21 due to the drop late in the half. Where's the mental journey uh, of the first half taking you at this point? There have been some incredible articles about the Chiefs and the playoffs and how snake-bitten they were from a kicking perspective. And you think back to some of those low-scoring games, that they had lost in the past and just how disastrous the kicking was and missing, you know, very makeable high expected value kicks to be in this game, to miss a field goal. I mean, you're more or less feeling like you've got to score a touchdown every drive. So even just getting to the field goal is demoralizing. And yet when you have a chance to bring the game back to the one score, you miss the field goal. It's just the worst possible outcome that you see playing out right in front of you here because i mean you can feel it right i mean the chiefs are going to go down and they're going to go down because of very avoidable mistakes and players not coming through on this big stage 21 13 i mean again it's just a field goal but that's it feels completely different than 21 10 when you're thinking about being multiple scores down one and a half to go and you're facing peyton manning Priest Holmes puts the team on his back there with a great long run, fumbles at the end of it, come back to uh, Colts on offense up 21 to 10. 
unstoppable at that point. CBS had like a camera trained on Chiefs defensive coordinator Greg Robinson all day. Every time Manning audibled into a virtually uncontested gain of 10 or more, they'd cut to the bewildered defensive coordinator. But there we go. When they needed it most, they held Peyton to three points on this drive. 24-10, still two-score game. How did you feel about the limitations of the defense at this point in the game as you you get that stop there and, hey, you're still in it? Yeah, so you go back through and you look at what the Chiefs did on defense during this time period, and, I mean, it's so depressing, right? You look at where they were from a yardage perspective during this four season, this five-season stretch, and they were top five in yardage every single time. They were top two in scoring three of the five years Ramil was there. But you look at the defensive side of the ball, and they were bottom 10 in yardage all five years. Unlike the current version of the Chiefs, where they have a good, not great defense, but the defense has played up in a lot of the seasons. Now, it didn't as much this past year. But with Mahomes, I mean, the defense has had a season where they were 17th in yards, but 7th in points. 16th in yards, but 10th in points, 27th in yards, but 8th in points. For the Chiefs, I mean, they're getting scored on. And so when we talked a little bit about the turnovers and how they could force those, we talked a little bit about the slow finish. But in the last four games of the regular season, the Chiefs had two games where they gave up 45 points. When you're coming off of those two recent games and you're facing this deficit, Again, you don't really feel like you're going to win, but I think the most important play for the Chiefs from the time that Marty Schottenheimer left until the day that Patrick Mahomes was drafted, the most important play in that interim was the Priest-Holmes fumble. He's running free. He gets the ball poked loose. They're going to score a touchdown there. He's unstoppable. If you don't lose that possession to the fumble, if you score the seven points instead, which they were going to do, you're still trailing, but you're going to come back and win behind this all-time great player and this all-time great offense at Arrowhead Stadium. You've got, you know, arguable chokers like Peyton Manning and Tony Dungy on the other sideline. You're going to win. And then when that ball came out, I mean, that was the most devastating play, you know, for a full generation of Chiefs fans. Ooh. Schottenheimer developing offensive linemen there that would play into Holmes finding holes in this game with with Tate and uh, Shields. I mean, Rolf came over from New Orleans, but um, as you mentioned, but and then you also had uh, yeah, Brian Waters under uh, Schottenheimer. And then Holmes also doing a lot of great stuff at the second level. Downfield of desperation, trying to do a little too much, reaching back for the stiff arm. Colts defensive backs chase him down, punch it out. The Colts DBs, got to give him the stiff arm, didn't see the other one coming up. Priest made up for the next drive, had another, I got this drive on the way to over 200 total yards. Rumbles down the field. Touchdown number 28 on the year. Ridiculous. But not that shocking. Had 21-year touchdown runs the year prior. And yeah, as mentioned, that 45-point game allowed to the Vikings. You know, you wouldn't have been able to go with a great zero RB strategy with the Chiefs or Colts in this season. But you would have been able to totally smash with an elite QB 
hyper fragile RB build like he recently podcasted on at Road of His here and wrote about with the Vikings. Uh, big Viking stack. You got Dante Culpepper, Randy Moss, uh, and then later on, RB Platoon, Mo Williams, Ontario Smith, and Michael Bennett, especially in best ball, if you could find one in 03. If Underdog was around back then, Ontario Smith would have gone nuts in uh, Rotoviz's Underdog Advance Rate Explorer. Pre-Wizinator, he would have been a legend. Shave the letters SOD in his head for steal of the draft. And then as a rookie fourth rounder, backloaded all his production for the fantasy playoffs. Tops 150 in both weeks, 15 and 16, including against the Chiefs. Three touchdowns finals week. I think if that happened today, a lot of people playing underdog would have steal of the draft shaved in their head running around this summer. But what was your philosophical approach to drafting um, when you first started playing? I mean, these would have been standard leagues where you have to approach it from that standard league mindset. But then as it evolves a little bit, it was interesting. You mentioned the elite QB with hyper fragile, and that's basically what drafting was like in the early days of high stakes. And it's interesting to kind of track how things will sort of move in these cycles. Because I remember even drafting a zero RB team, so not a hyper fragile team, most everyone is going running back, running back, running back, and then you're going to mix a QB in there. And there was a time period, I believe, and I could have this wrong, but I believe after Kurt Warner went to the Cardinals, where like drafting him in the fifth round this would be a 14 team league uh the nffc classic so you're you're talking about a few more players haven't been drafted but to get a quarterback in that range was late round quarterback at the time you're trying to get that quarterback who is the last of the elite tier so you can compete with the guys who have the real stars and you're not getting completely wiped out at the position and so then you know you have things evolved to where even say three or four years later i'm i mean i had a league where i drafted my first quarterback after my kicker now partly that was just to say that i had done it because it was you know toward the turn in like round 17 18 but for things to change that much in that shorter period of time i think it's great for fantasy football we've seen a lot of big moves in adp in the recent landscape here in the 2020s we're going to continue to have more of that one of the things that we want to keep in mind as we're looking at the roster construction explorers which do a fantastic job of allowing you to beat the ffpc we've had lots of writers podcasters and listeners readers subs dominate that and if you want to continue to do that you can use the coupon code rv radio 2023 at checkout for a 10 percent discount but thomas we also want to be thinking about what the next evolution is going to be. And that's what we've spent a lot of time talking about this season, where how can we take the roster construction explorers, gain the intel, understand what has worked? Because if you don't understand what has worked and why in the past, then even if you had a sense of how things were going to evolve, you wouldn't have the right starting point to know what that meant. I'm excited for what this year is going to bring and i mean this exercise of thinking through 20 2003 then thinking through you know kind of when i started seriously in 2008 thinking about how that changed to 2013 and then over the last 10 years <laughs> how it's changed to today it's a really cool journey and i think understanding that 
there were lots of changes through that time period, and we're going to continue to see more. That's both important for winning, and it's just really exciting from a fun perspective. Any um, zero RB stars that stuck with you uh, from back then? Really, the earliest, some of the earliest names were guys a little bit later than this, where I had these big breakout seasons from, you know, you get the one season from CJ Spiller, you get the big season from Darren McFadden, you get the, you know, the first of the big seasons from a Jamal Charles, you get the first of the big seasons from a Ray Rice. Uh, one of the early guys that I thought was just so much fun because I like the the small guys. I like the explosive guys. The first couple of seasons there from Chris Johnson where people feel like he's overdrafted. They've already got a guy in place. Why are they doing this? You know, how's that going to work in fantasy where you're not going to have the goal line touches? And then it turns out, well, I mean, if you score a 70 yard touchdown every other week, I mean, there's not necessarily a ton of predictiveness, obviously to those plays, just like you wouldn't expect Dante Hall to go out there and have the key play in any given moment or to be able to come back the following season and replicate it. But Chris Johnson, you know, a guy in terms of scrimmage yards up there in history. And so when you're talking about that, obviously the big runs help, but I mean, he was a fantastic player. Those are some of the really early names that jump out to me. Jamal Charles it was the, the latest of a line of Chiefs running backs, giving so many non-Chiefs fans a lot of joy watching him run around Arrowhead. And there is a sequence here in Arrowhead where it's deafening. Peyton Manning, he's got a 24-17 lead getting to the red zone there. The edge makes various line audibles into that deafening crowd noise. Then hits Reggie Wayne for a seemingly effortless TD. 31-17 late in the third. And they sure cut to Greg Robinson, defensive coordinator, which is cruel at this point. Um, how much did this game alter you your perception of Peyton Manning? I don't know that it it alters the perception anymore that the Andrew Luck, you know, massive comeback win changes the perception there, you know, too much. And yet it confirms for you. <laughs> that i mean these guys are among the greatest people to ever play and i mean i think that this is the game that really launches him for the rest of his career because he's i mean he's mid-career in many ways at this point he's a 27 year old quarterback he wins his first mvp obviously the following week the patriots are allowed to just hold Reggie Wayne and Marvin Harrison throughout the entire game and really is the catalyst for the rule change. Many of the rule changes that we still have today where, I mean, the fans don't go to the game to watch <laughs> the rules blatantly ignored throughout the entire process. Right. I mean, you want to see if the defensive backs can actually hang with these guys. If you can't hang with them, then they're going to be open for touchdowns. So they don't win. That part is unfortunate. The NFL got a lot of criticism for how they officiated that following game. They kind of put it back on the two teams and they're like, well, the Patriots have this fantastic defense and the Chiefs defense is terrible. It's like, yeah, that's not the point. So the Chiefs could have still won in a shootout if they had made the plays. The Colts could have still beaten the Patriots if you had enforced the rules. So obviously you can tell <laughs> even 20 years later, that portion of it's still a little bit raw for me. But 
when you think about what he did the following season, where the second MVP, the 2004 year, where he throws for 457 yards and 49 touchdowns on 497 attempts. He doesn't throw the ball 500 times and yet has one of the greatest passing seasons in NFL history, wins his second MVP. And you know, from this Chiefs playoff game through that 2004 year, no quarterback has played at as high a level as Peyton Manning. The many moments this game where Peyton Manning's getting up to the line early and audibling, I don't know how anyone can hear. I don't know how he's organizing this. He's not only is he making the throws, they're having the you know the, the late backfield shift to pick up the corner blitz and and catching that coming every time. Or Manning's getting the linebackers to declare, and even in the running game, finding edge a hole that's just like uncontested ten yards down the field. They end up getting a touchdown on that as well. This drive and the drive after this this next this next moment here are just especially sort of I'm him drives as the, the captain, the sheriff of the offense. But for a moment, Dante Hall did it again. Kick return, 31-24. I mean, that moment, did you suspect the Chiefs might actually not be dead? Yeah, and that was kind of the essence of this team, where all along you feel like it's a team of destiny. The Dante Hall portion of it, where not only do you have this all-time great offense, but you have special teams that are really unrivaled. And so you have this additional weapon. It just it felt like everything was going to come together. It felt like you have a Super Bowl winning coach. You have all of these pieces. And somehow it's going to play out in the right way. One of the things, too, is not just do you get those points back right away. So you're right back to even in terms of the back and forth. But you save all of that time as the team that's still down by a touchdown, that instant score from a game management perspective, so hugely important, which again, is one of the reasons why what happened next was all the more devastating. Yeah. Peyton Manning and Edger and James, just unreal. Once again, pushing the lead to 14, 38, 24. Trent Green, Priest Holmes do bring them back to within seven, perhaps takes a little too long. They leave the Colts with four and change left, and the Chiefs have timeouts. But the Colts run the clock down to 30 uh, seconds left, and that ends up being ball game 38-31. You mentioned, yeah, a week later, pre-2004 rules changes here. We're, we're near the end of the 03 season. Patriots kind of rough up the Colts. And Fox did not air a new episode of Arrested Development for some reason that night. Um, it wasn't until the following week they released episode 11, Public Relations, and they wondered why it was hard to find an audience with just random skip weeks. Were you left wondering if KC could have presented a better matchup than the Colts for the, the opponent and the conditions that day in Foxborough a week later? I think so, in part because the Chiefs had just such a different style offensively. And, I mean, holding Johnny Morton and Eddie Kennison was not going to have the same type of effect on their offense the holding Wayne and Harrison is going to have on the Colts. Hold the ball I, you want. Right, exactly. So we're, that's that's not really where we want the ball going anyway. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we know from having watched hundreds, if not thousands, of NFL games is that, I mean, anything can happen. If the ball bounces the right way, 
anytime that you have to play a Peyton Manning team, anytime you have to play a Tom Brady team, you know, the odds in, in many ways are going to be stacked against you. And yet I, it, it's sad to have been robbed of that game, not robbed of the game. I mean, obviously the Colts won, but to not have a chance to, to get that game, which I think could have been a game that we're talking about 20 years later, just like we're talking about this Colts game. I mean, that part would have been a lot of fun. And you go back through and you look at, you know, again, the game management element of it, the fact that after they had that Dante Hall touchdown to pull it back to 31, 24, that the Colts go on a 10 play drive. The chiefs go on a 17 play drive to pull it back to 38, 31. It's like, you just, you have to score faster. You got to give yourself more time. I don't think anybody was surprised that the Colts more or less ran the clock out from that point. But again, just a great game by both teams. If we exempt, I guess, both defenses. <laughs> this is another exhilarating loss to the Colts for Kansas City, uh, as in 95, as in 2013 with the Andrew Luck comeback. Um, you also had a one-score loss in the 2000s, or, or it was one score in the fourth quarter, but not quite as exhilarating to the casual fan as the other three uh, Casey losses to Indy. Then in 18, Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs still trying to get that first home playoff win for the franchise in about 25 years. Did it feel like some sense of closure, that 18 game against the Colts, given... Um, what you'd uh, seen as a fan since the early 90s. 2018 was the beginning of this time period that it just felt so completely different. And winning that game, winning as they did it, even losing the next week in overtime to the Patriots where they seemed like they were probably the better team that season. And it's a, a situation where you know, you wish that they had been able to win the coin toss and go down and get the score, go and win the Super Bowl. But the way that Mahomes played in that postseason just already felt like it put everything to rest. It's just like now everything is going to be completely different. And I mean, you think about what happened or, you know, what's been happening with a team like the Green Bay Packers, where you go from a Brett Favre to an Aaron Rodgers, you have decades of success. Maybe you underperform a little bit in the playoffs. Maybe you would like to have won more Super Bowls, but you get to experience, I mean, some people their entire lives has been elite quarterback play from the Packers. Obviously, you've got franchises like the Pittsburgh Steelers with all the Super Bowl victories, but then also you just know going out there that even last year when they weren't even any good, you know, you get back to that more or less even team and you got a shot at the playoffs late you talk about the new england patriots and where they have been the chiefs have been like that for kansas city stretching back into the early 90s and obviously they were a factor in the the very beginning of the nfc afc rivalry with super bowls back at the very beginning but the chiefs have been that and yet when you go through this very long time period where you're losing all of these home playoff games after Arrowhead in the regular season is more or less completely impenetrable. 
it I mean, it really wears on the psyche of a town that sees itself obviously as a football town. And I mean, if you, if you love sports just in general, but then if you love the NFL, if you love professional football, if you love your hometown and the experience of the crowd at the stadium and all of the elements that tie together there to go through all of that is hard. And so, I mean, there have been franchises that have been much worse than Kansas City and in some ways probably deserve what's going on for the Chiefs now more than Kansas City does. And yet to have gone through all of those losses and to come out at the other side or come out in the present and have Patrick Mahomes, who really does look like he's going to be the greatest player ever. There's a symmetry to that that I mean, again, if you're a Chiefs fan, if you grew up in Kansas City, it's just so beautiful. And I love it. It's been great to experience. I mean, you don't ever want to get into that situation where you just sort of expect to win the Super Bowl every year. And if you don't win the Super Bowl, it's a disappointing season. That part of it is a little weird, and and you don't want to get there. But it's, it's been amazing. And one of the reasons we can go back and do this game, and I was excited to do it, is because we're coming off of the Chiefs Super Bowl victory because we have a Patrick Mahomes. If that goes in a different direction, then going back through and doing this game would be pretty devastating as opposed to sort of a cathartic experience. This has been another episode of Remember That Game. Please rate, review, subscribe, and check out more episodes.